Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Good morning. We are so glad that you're joining us at home this morning. Uh, I know it's been quite a week for most of us. Uh, For a lot of us, home life is about the only life we've had this past week. Uh, saw one meme that said, no one will ever again question what a stay-at-home mom does all day. Uh, now, one of my friends posted that two of his kids had uh, actually been expelled from school for fighting. Uh, it was only the second day of homeschooling. Uh, but uh, I'm sure that uh, many of us can uh, associate with that. That resonates uh, with a lot of us today. But uh, as I was preparing for... Uh, this morning's message, I was struck at how providential it was that we were in the book of Exodus. Uh, Now, I'm hoping you caught what I did there, providential. I remember last week we talked about God's providence, uh, his sovereignty over all things, and how he exercises that sovereignty uh, to bring about his purposes, and that those purposes are always good and right, even if they don't feel or appear that way to us. But uh, anyhow, let's dig into today's passage. Uh, we're going to be looking at Exodus 2, 11 through 22 today. And beginning in verse 11, it says this. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So this is one day after Moses had grown up. So one day after God used Pharaoh to save Moses from Pharaoh. One day after God had used Pharaoh to provide for Moses as he grew up. One day after God used Pharaoh to educate Moses. One day after God used Pharaoh to develop leadership skills in Moses. Basically, this was one day after God used Pharaoh to do all that God wanted to use Pharaoh to do, in Moses's life. We learn from Stephen over in Acts 7 how extensive Moses' upbringing and training was. In Acts 7:22, Stephen said this, "And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel." So for 40 years, Moses was instructed and trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now, this wasn't just a matter-of-fact statement that Stephen was making. Stephen was actually making a pretty big point. Seeing as Moses was being raised as a prince of Egypt, this training would have been the most comprehensive education in the world. Uh, The ancient Egyptians were one of the most uh, advanced civilizations of the time. So this instruction would have included education in things like reading, writing, mathematics, geography, law, 
just to name a few. And while we know that Moses may not have been the best speaker, uh, later on in Exodus 4, his excuse for God not to send him was that he was slow of speech and, and tongue. So while he may not have been the best speaker, we have ample evidence that he excelled at the written word. He is responsible for writing the first five books of the Bible. So this is why Stephen says he was mighty in his words. Uh, his education provided him the means to learn and develop that skill to become mighty in his words. In other words, Pharaoh equipped Moses. God used Pharaoh to equip Moses, one, to write the first five books of the Bible. Uh, but he also would have been trained as a soldier and a military leader since traditionally the generals of a Pharaoh's army were his sons, grandsons, nephews, uh, basically his male relatives. Moses would have been trained to quickly and efficiently organize and move armies, to efficiently and organize and move large groups of people. So this military training is where his mighty deeds would have come into play. Uh, in fact, some historians place Moses at the head of Pharaoh's armies in the time frame when Egypt would have been at war with Ethiopia and actually reigned victorious over Ethiopia. So this is the man that Pharaoh raised and equipped. or Most precisely, it is the man that God used Pharaoh to train and equip for the true calling that God had on Moses' life. Not as a prince of Egypt, but as a leader of God's chosen people. Now, we know that God does not use people because they are equipped to do what God wants them to do. Rather, God equips those whom he has called. In that way, God receives all of the glory for how he uses a person. So Moses was well-trained in the skills and abilities required to lead the nation of Israel. But are skills all that God is looking for in order to use someone greatly? You know, skills can be something that we develop over time through training, through education. They can also be something that uh, comes natural to us, is, is natural gifts, natural talents. But is that really what God is looking for in order to use someone greatly? Well, reading on further, we can see how far Moses' natural abilities and natural skills got him in trying to lead the nation of Israel. In Exodus 2, uh, beginning of verse 12, we read this. Uh, after he went out and saw the Egyptian beating the Hebrew slave, it says, He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. That's a nice way of saying he killed the guy. Uh, it says, When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. So Moses saw a situation and decided to solve the matter on his own. Now, was it wrong for him to try to stop the Egyptian from beating the Hebrew? No, not necessarily, no. Was it wrong to murder the Egyptian? That would be a yes. Definitely, yes, wrong to kill. So, regardless of Moses' intentions, relying on his own abilities and wisdom 
had a horrible outcome. The next day, he discovers that his rash actions, regardless of how well-intentioned they may have been, had driven a wedge between him and those that he desired to help. He thought maybe that his good intentions, along with his position as a prince of Egypt and his skill as a leader, would be enough to motivate the Hebrews to respect him, to follow him. And he was wrong. Once Pharaoh heard of Moses' betrayal of his Egyptian upbringing and privileges, he sought to kill Moses. And so Moses had no choice but to run. Now, what was Moses' biggest mistake here? Was it murdering the Egyptian? No. Actually, that was not his biggest mistake. That was the result of his biggest mistake. His biggest mistake was thinking that he could solve the situation on his own. No matter his position, no matter his skills, no matter his abilities, he could not do it on his own. His biggest mistake was a lack of trust in God. See, you're either trusting God or you're trying to be God. You either defer to and trust God's plan or you try to put your own plan into effect. Moses was trying to put his own plan into effect. He was trying to be God. And this lack of trust in God led to catastrophe for Moses. He found himself as a man without a people, without a family, without a home. So what happens next? Verse 15 picks up and says this, But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs of water, uh, troughs to water their father's flock. Shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses, for the next 40 years, becomes a shepherd. He went from powerful prince of Egypt to insignificant shepherd for four decades. Now, a lot can be said about this. However, that's not what I want to highlight in this message. I do encourage you, though, to see what God said about this in Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26. Uh, Be sure to read, think over those few verses to get some insight into exactly why Moses chose to turn his back on his Egyptian privilege. But I want you to think about this for a moment. The one man that God had chosen to lead his people out of slavery was on the scene. He was there. He was in Egypt. He had the position. He had the skills. He had the ability to lead the Israelites. So what does God do? Once Moses displays even to himself that he's not capable for the task at hand, God takes him into the wilderness. In Scripture, the wilderness plays a pretty big role from Genesis all the way through. Uh, Even through Paul in Galatians, talking about his experience in the wilderness. (coughs) 
we see God using the wilderness as a time of refinement and development. Uh, it's a place where people meet God. It's in the wilderness that Jacob sees his stairway to heaven. It's in the wilderness that Elijah hears the still small voice of God. It's in the wilderness that John the Baptist preached repentance. It's in the wilderness that Jesus fasted for 40 days uh, and nights before beginning his earthly ministry. It was in the wilderness that Saul encountered Christ and became the man that we know as Paul. In Hosea, we see God telling Israel that it is in the wilderness that they will be wooed to God and they will call him husband. It is in the wilderness that an intimacy with God is developed. So this is where God drives Moses. In the wilderness, he finds a family, he finds a home. It is also here that God works in Moses' life to such an extent that in Numbers 12, 3, we read, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. That's quite a statement. So during these 40 years, the people of Israel are still suffering under the yoke of slavery. These 40 years, when God could have simply had Moses do what he was going to have Moses do. We look at that and may be tempted to think, didn't God care? Why did he not just use Moses right then and there to deliver the people? We have a tendency to react to situations, uh, much like Moses did when he saw the Egyptian beating the Hebrew. He reacted. You know what? God does not react to situations. He uses them. He is in control of them. We see urgency. God sees opportunity. We often miss what is important because we are too busy reacting to the urgent. Urgent does not necessarily mean important. Say you have two tasks that need to be done. It may be urgent to get both tasks done, but it is important that they be done well. If the important isn't heeded, then the reaction to the urgent is useless. So what is important to God? Not situations. Remember, situations are created by him and used by him. So it is not situations or circumstances that are important to God. It's people. People are important to God. Situations may not be urgent to God, but people are always important to him. And please don't mistake me for saying that people's happiness, comfort, or convenient lifestyle is important to God. No, the person is what is important to God. This doesn't mean God is out to make you unhappy or uncomfortable, but it does mean that he will use whatever situation around you to bring about what is important in you. And this is why we see God taking his time, another 40 years, before bringing Moses back to free the Israelites. He was developing Moses into more than a great leader. He was develop, developing, in, developing him into a godly man, the important. Slavery was in an urgent situation, but making Moses godly was important. Slavery was an urgent situation, but developing Aaron and Miriam, and Joshua, and Caleb into godly people was important. Slavery was an urgent situation, 
but bringing up a new Pharaoh whom God would use to display his own sovereignty and glory was important. See, God doesn't simply equip those whom he has called. God also develops those whom he has called. Equipping is the first part. That's the easy part. God wants to develop those whom he has called, and that is the critical part of God using you greatly. Remember that whatever urgent situation you may find yourself in, and I'm quite confident we can all find at least one urgent situation right now that we're facing, it's not urgent to God. It is a tool in his very capable hands. Just as he worked in the lives of Aaron and Miriam and Joshua and Caleb in the midst of their slavery to develop them into godly people, so God wants to do with you. Just as he used Moses' wilderness experience to develop godliness in him, so God wants to do in you. Do not miss the important that God wants to do because you're so consumed with and fearful of the urgent. You know, Romans 8.28, it's a common, familiar verse. It gets tossed around a lot, a lot, and unfortunately, it often gets tossed right out of context as well. Even though you're probably familiar with it, let's read it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is a comforting passage for all those who are followers of Christ. It is the guarantee that God is never done working in our lives. It is the guarantee that our greatest desire will come to pass. Now, I say that assuming that as a Christian, your greatest desire is not for health, wealth, and prosperity. If so, you're in for a rude awakening because this verse has nothing to do with that. It in no way, shape, or form promises that or any other kind of rainbow-sneezing unicorn or soft fuzzy kitten platitudes. I am assuming that your greatest desire as a Christian is to be more like Jesus with every passing day. To be more Christ-like every time you come out on the other side of an urgent crisis. See, verse 29 goes on to say this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what verse 29 tells us is this. All things work together for good because God has already determined that he would make us more and more like Jesus. So what is the good that verse 28 is speaking of? The good of being made more like Jesus because of everything that takes place in our life. God wants to use the urgent crises in your life to make you more like Jesus, to develop godliness in you. This should bring us great hope. In fact, Paul even said as much earlier in the book of Romans. In Romans 5, 3-5, we read this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul said he rejoiced in sufferings and tribulations. Why? 
because ultimately these the things that cause us pain or suffering or inconvenience or discomfort are the very things God uses to produce Christ-like character in us which then produces hope for us. Hope because we are able to see the workings of God in our lives. Hope because we can see that God has not abandoned us in the midst of troubling times. Hope because we can see God's sovereign hand guiding everything for our good that we may be more like Jesus. You know, we are in quite the circumstance in our present day. We have an urgent situation that can literally be life or death for some people. And we need to do things to confront this urgent situation with wisdom. But let us not get so fearful and worried with the urgency of the situation that we lose sight of what is important. And what exactly is important for us? Well, it's important that we remember that God is in control. While this doesn't mean that we neglect a wise course of action, it does mean we recognize that a wise course of action isn't what will remedy the situation. God is. Therefore, we need have no reason to fear and fret and worry. Fear and worry is actually the evidence of a heart that is not fully trusting and resting in who God is. If you're not resting, you're not trusting. And if you're not trusting God, you're trying to be God. Again, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue wise practices to keep our family safe. It's acknowledging that we should act wisely, but trust the outcome to God and then rest in his goodness. It's also important that we recognize that God uses the urgent to accomplish the important. Your development into a godly, Christ-like person is what is important to God in all of this. And what is important to God is truly important. God wants to use this corona situation to work in your life. He wants to use it to draw you closer to himself in a relationship of trust and intimacy. A familiar passage to all of us is James 1, 2 through 4. Uh, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is a call to trust and rest in God through whatever urgent situation you find yourself. Do you trust God? Do you see godliness developed in you as the most important thing in your life? Then rest in him. Let him take care of the urgent while you focus on the important. Lastly, it's important that we use our time wisely. God has, in effect, cleared the calendar for many of us. We have fewer, if any, work obligations, no school activities, no extracurricular activities, no concerts, sports, social, civic, or civic meetings. You know, I have had so many people say to me in the past that when it comes to their prayer life and devotional life, they would do more. They wish they could do more but they don't have enough time. That they would do family worship if they had more time. Well, are you discovering that time was never really the issue? 
you aren't praying or reading the Bible any more than you were when you said you didn't have enough time. Maybe you've discovered that it was actually that the desire was never truly there. Or are you using this time of a cleared schedule to spend more time in prayer in the word personally and as a family? As I've had so many people tell me they would if they had the time. God wants to use this time in your life to make you more like Jesus. Are you using your time in such a way that he is doing that in your life? Rahm Emanuel, uh, President Obama's chief of staff, he said this. He said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Now, knowing the context of his statement, he most likely had less than ethical or moral intentions in mind when he said it. The statement itself, however, can have a great application. Don't let this crisis go by without using it in your life to draw close to God. Don't let this crisis go by without using it to allow God to make you more like Jesus. Do not let this crisis go by without using the time you've been given to spend quality time with your family. Don't let this crisis go by without using the time you've been given to develop a, a habit of family worship time. Don't let this crisis go to waste. God wants to use this urgent crisis in your life. Will you let him? Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, God wants to work in your life. He will use whatever means he needs to for you to see how much he loves you and how much you need him. You know, if you're not a follower of Christ, you have a need that is both urgent and important. You're facing an uncertain present, which is scary enough, but you are facing a very certain future of judgment, which is even scarier. Your need is urgent, and it is important that you recognize your need for Jesus. He is the remedy for the sin that ensnares you. He is the hope for your hopeless future. If you are at a point in your life where you're ready to acknowledge your own sinfulness before God and your incredible need for an incredible Savior, we would love to be there for you. Uh, please call or text one of the pastors here. We would love to talk with you more about this. And if you're a follower of Christ, how are you responding to the urgent situations in your life? Are you trusting and resting in God? Or are you fearing and worrying because you are too busy trying to be God? Are you relying on your own wisdom and strength to get you through the crisis at hand? Are you trusting in the providence of God to bring about the best possible outcome? Are you looking for how God can use this situation to make you more like Jesus? Are you using your time in such a way that you are drawing closer to God through all of this? How about your family? Is your family being drawn closer to God because of the decisions you are making concerning your use of time during this urgent situation? Do not miss the important because you are so focused on the urgent. In control of everything that is going on in our world right now. Lord, I thank you that you desire to use this to make us more like Jesus. I thank you that you love us enough to grant us our greatest desire to be more like Jesus every day. 
Father, I pray that you will find us as a people laying ourselves wide open for you to work on our lives through this. I pray that you will find us a people who are trusting and resting in your goodness, trusting and resting in your sovereignty. Father, I pray that you will not find us a people who are fretting and worrying and obsessed with the urgent, but you will find us obsessed with Jesus. That we will be so occupied looking to Jesus, focusing on Jesus, drawing close to you, Father, that we won't have time to worry about things going on around us. Father, I do pray that you will give us your wisdom and how to respond to the situation that we find ourselves in. Not to react to it with some knee-jerk reaction, but the wisdom to respond in a, in a Christ-like way. Both in our actions uh, as a family and what we do to safeguard ourselves, but also in our actions as far as our interactions with other people, Lord. How we speak to them, how we treat them, Father that they will see in us people who are not fretting and worrying, but people who are resting in a great and sovereign and good God. May people see in us throughout this crisis something that they wish they had. Father, again, we thank you, not just that you can use this crisis in our lives, not just that you want to use this crisis in our lives, but that you will. You are a faithful, good, and loving God. And we give you the glory and the honor and the praise for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.